This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One, American badass at the UFC. Two, once again, the biggest indication of the truth is something being declared disinformation. This time, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline bombing. Three, a conversation with the Wolf of Wall Street. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube. And follow me on X at Will Kane. Today, we have a fascinating conversation with Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. He has a new book out, The Wolf of Investing. And he'll talk to us today about the economy, about the state of corruption in politics and Wall Street, and stories. What was real? What was make-believe? And the movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio about his life, The Wolf of Wall Street. But first, story number one. On Saturday night, I committed to one of the smallest amounts of sleep I've done, at least in the advanced years of my life. I knew it was going to be a late night when I was invited by former Navy SEAL Bear Hanlon, the founder of Born Primitive Apparel Line, to join him and his brother at UFC 295 at Madison Square Garden. It was a fun night. The UFC environment is electric. I had never been to UFC fight. I'd been to some heavyweight, or rather not heavyweight, but big time um, boxing matches. I'd been to Canelo Alvarez versus Triple G. But this is my first time seeing mixed martial arts in person, going to the UFC. And it's awesome. I will say, in New York, it's wild, not just how legal, but how present in everyday life is weed. I mean, there are people smoking weed right next to you. There could be a 14-year-old sitting there with his dad and one row in front of him, somebody sparking up a massive joint. But the fight itself, a lot of fun. But I will have to say the most notable moment of the night, because what was a card that was supposed to feature John Jones, he tore his pectoral muscle, ended up featuring the biggest star I guess, in America, former President Donald Trump, right before the main card kicked off, right at 10 p.m., the lights dimmed, the spotlight came on, and American Badass by Kid Rock blared over the speakers. In walked Donald Trump, accompanied by Kid Rock and Dana White, accompanied by former colleague Tucker Carlson. They made their way to their seats to the raucous applause of the crowd, where also was awaiting another former colleague of mine, Dan Bongino. 
the crowd went absolutely nuts for Donald Trump. I'm just telling you, I'm just here reporting the facts, telling you the truth. It was the biggest cheer of the night of Madison Square Garden, and the entire crowd erupted into chants of USA. On a night when I watched fighter after fighter come in draped in their flag, the Mexican flag, the Czech flag, the Brazilian flag, the Russian flag, it was a moment of patriotism for America. And look, I have expressed to you my concerns about the passion out there to vote against Donald Trump. But what is clear is the amount of passion for Donald Trump. It was truly eye-opening. And it was also, regardless of your political persuasion, I did see a photo of Bill Burr, comedian Bill Burr, sitting in the same row right there next to Trump with his wife giving Trump double bird. But regardless of your political persuasion, when that crowd erupts into USA, it is, well, badass. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Story number two. It is almost a truism in life that whatever is declared disinformation can quickly, or at least given a, a bit of time, be revealed as the truth. The Washington Post reports over the weekend that a Ukrainian operative, high-level military operative, is responsible for the bombing of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You'll remember the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is the gas pipeline that takes gas from Russia to Europe. At the advent of the early days of the war in Ukraine, that pipeline was destroyed. There was speculation at the time that the United States was behind it. There was seemingly at least good evidence of motivation with President Joe Biden saying things like, it, it, it will not come online. Something will happen. And the incentive lied not with Russia, but in, in the enemies of Russia to cut off an economic engine for Russia in delivering oil and gas to Europe. But if you said that at the time, if you, if you connected the dots, if you logically analyzed the news, you were accused of peddling Russian disinformation, of being a puppet of Vladimir Putin. Those are exact accusations. You can go back and look at this stuff. But just like almost everything with COVID, it now turns out that wasn't Russian disinformation to doubt that it was Russia behind the bombing. Now, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's true what the Washington Post reports, that Ukraine is responsible 
for that bombing. I actually have some questions about the capabilities of the Ukrainian military to conduct a secret uh, clandestine op overseas outside their borders, high level of sophistication, and get away with it for that long. I have some sincere questions about whether or not Ukraine could pull that off, at least without assistance from a very powerful ally. But without the ability to present you the evidence of who exactly is guilty, what I think is of note today is those who were so certain of the guilt of Russia declared everyone who dared to disagree with their propaganda in the, just like every war, the propaganda that declared something disinformation, misinformation. Man, there is no, I don't want to hear that term. I don't want to hear, if I hear that term, I think you're on the right track. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Story number three. He is the Wolf of Wall Street. Jordan Belfort, the real-life man behind the story of The Wolf of Wall Street, the Martin Scorsese movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. He's got a new book out called The Wolf of Investing. Belfort joined us here on the Will Kane podcast to talk about what he learned in committing his crimes, what he thinks about being famous for, in essence, infamy, and what he sees in the American economy and the American political system today, and most notably, how he thinks now you can get rich. His best advice in investing on Wall Street. Here's the author of the new book, The Wolf of Investing, Jordan Belfort. The Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort, here with us on the Will Kane Podcast. Great to see you. Great to meet you, Jordan. You got a new book out. You see it there in front of you if you're watching instead of listening to the Will Kane podcast, The Wolf of Investing. You have gone from a penny stock <laughs> trader and criminal to a proselytizer of index funds, Jordan. Uh, explain to me your new safe way of investing. <laughs> what a long, strange trip it's been, right? Well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I when I... Um, was at Stratton. I started Stratton. It was many, it was 30 years ago, right? Uh, and I started at the big firms. I didn't start in penny stocks. I started at a big firm, New York Stock Exchange stocks. This is before indexing was even really widely known, right? Um, so that was where I was originally trained. I, after the market crashed in 87, I ended up going to a penny stock firm because Wall Street was closed for a while, so to speak, right? And then I ended up settling to these $5 wildly speculative stocks, right? And I, everyone knows the story. You've probably seen the movie. I ultimately went to jail, right? When I got out of jail, I wrote the book, The Wolf of Wall Street, right? And it became this huge hit. And from there, I started going around the world and speaking and mentoring people on sales, entrepreneurship, and the mindset of success and so forth. And I built a great business. I'm very fortunate that, you know, I got a second chance and uh, the movie was a huge hit. So all great. I never spoke about investing, Never did, you know, and, and people would ask me all the time for advice. What should I buy? Where's the market going? I never did it because I didn't feel comfortable doing it. 
ultimately, I watched some of my own family just getting completely whipsawed in the market. My brother-in-law, very successful guy, smart guy, educated guy, right? And his wife. And yet they're making these ridiculously foolish investments by simply not knowing the right way to invest. Now, at this point, obviously, I'm you know, a totally different person than I was back at the Stratton days, right? And I'm like, well, how am I going to go out there and, and teach, because I have, a, thankfully, a very large global audience, right, the right way to invest? Now, I knew already that the answer to this was indexing. I did, because I knew the index funds were by far the best long-term investment out there for the average individual and for everybody, not even rich, poor alike, that it's it's historically academically been proven to beat the overall, you know, any of the, the the stock pickers, so to speak, are out there, right? But I said to myself two things. Number one, if I write the book just like, hey, buy index funds, right? No one's going to read it because it's dry, boring, and they'll put it down. I have to write this thing in a kind of laugh out loud, funny, irreverent way that's going to make it a page turner. So I started doing a lot of research, and the more research I did, I was like. I mean, like, it's so obvious that, like, how to actually build a world-class portfolio for anybody. And so the next challenge was how do I write in a funny way? So it took me a year and a half to do that. And I ultimately came up with the Wolf of Investing, which is basically it's like a five-step process to building a, a world-class portfolio. And I think the mistake that most people make to what you, your average investors is they don't have that much money to start with. Maybe they have, I'll make up with them a $10,000, right? That's $20,000, right? They're like, if I'm going to make any headway with that amount of money, I need to hit a home run. I need to like find the next Apple or the next Bitcoin or some other trade in and out and your options where they, they think they have to make a lot, a huge profit with leverage attached to it to get wealthy. And that's not true. It's just, it's not true. Mathematically, you could actually go out there and, and make an awful lot of money over the long term through passive investing by buying an S&P 500 index fund and a couple of other investments, buying them in certain types of accounts where you can defer taxes as well, right? As much as possible. And if you do that, engage in what's called dividend reinvestment, meaning reinvest your dividends and add a little bit of money whenever you can, hopefully every month, a little bit of money, whether it's 50, 100, hopefully a lot more. In 30 years, you have a massive amount of money due to this long-term compounding. It doesn't seem to be working in the beginning. In the first five years, like, it's not working. I returned 12%. I'm nowhere. But over time, something magical happens. And it's truly magical. Long-term compounding is magical. Suddenly, after like 20 years, it just shoots, the number shoots up. And a small amount of money becomes a massive amount of money. So my message to everyone is like, you know, the future's going to come whether, you know, you prepare for it or not. So either you can get effed by the future, you know, you can, or you can get ahead of the future. And the way to do it is by following the strategy in this book, which is, I, I believe it's the best strategy for everyone, is to avoid short-term trading, trying to pick winning stocks, and letting time do the heavy lifting. That's the short story. So I think it's Charlie Munger, it could have been Warren Buffett, to describe compound interest as the eighth wonder of the world. You know, you, you talk about in, in your first answer to me that time you spent on Big Wall Street. Anybody that's seen the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, will remember your time there, probably because one of the greatest scenes I can think of in cinema is you or Leonardo DiCaprio playing you, sitting in a restaurant with Matthew McConaughey, talking about the way you churn, the way you make money on Wall Street. Now, I have a friend, speaking of Munger and Buffett, who is a value investing 
uh, disciple of of Munger and Buffett, and he has his own fund. And he's been preaching to me what you have just described for well over 20 years. While he wouldn't necessarily buy up for index funds, he said, look, the Wall Street game is essentially what was described to you in that scene with McConaughey. It's churn. It's short term. It's it's movement. Keep the investor movement moving. It's the opposite of buy and hold, the opposite of value, the opposite of long term. Exactly. So he, here's here's the way to, to, to look at it, right? Experts on Wall Street, stockbrokers, investment bankers, right? You know, analysts, people that really run these funds, these big hedge funds, mutual funds, right? In order to, to justify their existence, they have to be active. Imagine giving your money to a hedge fund manager and he just took it, bought the S&P. You say, well, why am I paying you a 20% performance bonus? Like, I, I, what are you doing? You, you're not active. Like, So they have to generate activity to justify managing money. Yet, and, and by the way, Jordan, and, and with that activity, you, you generate fees. Fees? Even worse than the fees is the performance bonuses. So in the hedge fund world, right, it's like heads they win, tails you lose. On winning years, so let's say they do well and they have a 15% return for a year. They have a 20% performance bonus that they pull off of that. Yet in a losing year, the investors in the fund absorb 100% of the losses and they don't give anything back. So it's like this completely lopsided structure. In fact, speaking of Buffett, he was so incensed by it that he called Wall Street out. He called the hedge fund industry out. He made this million dollar bet. It's a famous bet in 2008. He goes, I'll put up 500,000. You put up 500,000. Any hedge fund, a group of hedge funds, you won't be able to beat the S&P 500 over a 10 year period. Let's see what happens. Someone took the bet and it was a fund of funds. They put together a hundred of, they thought the best performing funds, right? In year seven, they threw in the towel, the funds. They were so far behind after seven years that they gave up. And in 10 years, they got obliterated. And here's the weird part. Buffett's in initial thesis was, listen, maybe you can pick stocks, okay, but after your fees and, and, and commissions and the taxes that you pay and all this stuff, you're gonna be behind anyway. Well, it was worse than that. Not only did they have to pull all these fees, but they were behind even without fees. It is really, really difficult to beat the S&P 500 on a consistent basis. It's proven, this is like every study. There's a study I, I cited by a guy named Paul Samuelson. Famous, he won a Nobel Prize for it, right? And he studied every mutual fund since the beginning of mutual funds in the 1920s. And what he found is that after they take their fees and commissions, they do not keep up with the actual index, the S&P 500. They're not as, as proficient at making money, yet they're charging all these massive fees. So that really was the, the first shot across the bow of the mutual fund industry and Wall Street at large, and started this idea that an index fund, meaning a fund that didn't try to beat the market, but just bought the whole market, right? And with ultra low fees, virtually no expenses attached, right? And the company that started was Vanguard. And that started a revolution in investing. The problem is that there's something I refer to in the book I call the Wall Street fee machine complex, which operates to convince you that this is not so. They literally brainwash you with constant advertisements and infotainment like Jim Cramer on CNBC and, and whatnot. He's not the only one, but he's a big one, right? And all the, the charlatans on TikTok and, and, and Instagram, buy these five stocks that are about to move, buy these, I mean, this is all nonsense. It's historically been proven that it doesn't work, that the returns are far lower and the, the question is why? I'll tell you why. Because the S&P 500 is almost like this perfect animal when it comes to an investment. The, the 500 stocks that make up the S&P 500, they're the biggest, baddest, most profitable stocks, companies in the United States, right? But 
those 500 stocks today are not the same 500 stocks from 10 years ago. Every three months, the committee at S&P meets and they remove stocks that are not doing as well, that are falling from grace to companies or becoming less relevant in the marketplace to their sector, right? Because there's 10 sectors. There's the financial sector, there's the information and technology sector, there's the healthcare sector, there's different sectors that mirror the U.S. economy. So they adjust the weighting of the sectors based on what's happening in the U.S. economy and they remove companies that are falling from grace and replace them with better companies. So once they're in there, all the institutions have to buy these companies. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And trying to beat these 500 companies that you can buy in one trade with no taxes as, as, it may, as they start to do their thing and make money. You're not paying taxes with every single trade, right? You pull so far ahead by investing through an index fund the right way, especially when you do it in certain types of towns that you can defer taxes even better still. And I go through all this in the book. It's a, it's a win-win situation for investors. What we're describing together, what you're describing to us, is essentially the way Wall Street works. It's the casino. It, it describes the entire industry as a wolf. But what I would love to ask you is, and maybe maybe it's you know the connection with Leonardo DiCaprio here. You know, there, in the movie Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio played you know a con man, and and it mirrors a real life story as well. And at the end of that movie, he's hired, I believe it was by the FBI, right. to help. To help look for other conmans like right. the character he played in Catch Me If You Can. I, I'm curious, you know, as someone who has gotten caught being what we'll describe as a wolf, you're the self-described wolf in your own story. If you were hired today to, by someone to point to the market and not indict the market at large, an indictment which I, I share with you on what you described a moment ago. But I guess, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to limit you to just you know, sheerly criminal activity, but what should be criminal as well. I'll give you that, that playing field as well. Where would you point to as other wolves? So here's the reality. Wall Street has got, is like this two-headed monster. On one side, one head, right, there's this amazing value creation. They, they create massive value. Companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, they are necessary, to the U.S. economy, to the world economy. They take companies public, provide future financing, secure the credit market, debt market. Without those companies, we would be in bad shape indeed. So Wall Street is necessary. They create massive value. And I think anyone who knows anything about finance would know that to be true. That's the one good side of Wall Street. Then there's the dark side of Wall Street, where they create weapons of financial mass destruction in the form of derivatives, credit default swaps, things that are nothing more than gambling tools so they can make massive money on that. They create bubbles after bubble after bubble. They are in bed with the companies that take public and issue analyst reports that are not always accurate. They're in favor of the people that they take public. They charge excessive fees, commissions, encourage short-term trading. They partner with Madison Avenue and advertising to put massive advertising out there to convince people to play the sucker's game. And what is the sucker's game? I'll explain it. So you said a casino. And you're right, the stock market is very much like a casino in some regard. When you go into a casino, right, a legitimate casino, right, legal casino, the games, the deck is stacked against you. If you play long enough, you're probably gonna lose 5%. That's, you know, the edge, it's like a five to 7% edge. Some games a bit more, some a bit less, but the odds are stacked against you, hence the profitability of these casinos. That's legit casinos, fair enough. But then you have corrupt casinos. The corrupt casinos have loaded dice and deal from the bottom of the deck. That's Wall Street. That's the stock market that you buy into. When you engage in short-term trading, you are 
dealing in a place where the deck has been stacked against you and it's not legit. They have information before you have it. They have faster computers than you have, so they front run your trades for this high frequency trading. They have an edge. You can't compete as the average investor. So to play that game is a loser's game. It's a sucker's game. So like in the classic movie War Games, remember Matthew Broderick, they say the only way to win is not to play. You can't play that game. You can't win at that game. So the question is then, how do you extract your fair share as an investor, as an individual investor? How do you extract your fair share of the massive value that Wall Street creates? And they do create massive value. How do you participate in that? And how do you avoid getting caught up in the sucker's game, in the corrupt casino? And the answer is by ignoring all the nonsense, the short-term ups and downs, and buy this sector, sell this sector. If you listen to Jim Cramer, he'll tell you, today you should buy oil and you should sell this stock, and Meta's probably going to have earnings that aren't as good. Sell Meta. I mean, come on. It's like a joke. It, 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 number one, the guy has no idea what he's talking about. He's, he knows about the market, but he doesn't know what stocks is. Matt Kaiser, what stocks are going up, down, sideways. Who knows in the short term, right? And he's wrong more often than he's right and he just changes his mind the way the wind blows you have to ignore <laughs> all of that all of the, that noise all right and by buying the best companies in america like that in one shot this is perfect mousetrap right the s p 500 you want to have a couple of other investments as well i want to accomplish it's all in the book by the way and it's very simple to do it really is a turnkey solution right and by doing that you get to participate in all the value that Wall Street creates. Why? Because if they take a company public that ends up doing really well, where does it end up? In the S&P 500. You're going to get exposure to that. So, but you don't want to do is start trying to bet which one's going to outperform which one. You can't do it. Human beings are terrible stock pickers, and it's just not going to work for you. All right, I got to ask you a few questions about the Wolf of Wall Street, because anybody sure. listening is going to want to know. First of all, what... Uh, if, when you first saw the movie, when you screened the movie, or you look at it now, what percentage would you say is real versus fictionalized? So I would say like, you know, 90% of it's true, right? Most of the stuff that's fictionalized is, re is relatively minor stuff. Like one, one thing is that the, the timeline is collapsed. So it would appear that like every second on like something insane is happening. In reality, it was like <laughs> spaces in between some of those things. So like, it's true, I sunk a yacht, and I, the plane crashed, but didn't happen like while I was on the, I wasn't watching it fly. It was it happened a week later, right? And like, you know, so there's a lot of stuff like that. A lot of things were like, were collapsed characters. So in other words, where, where like the Danny character, Dot Jonah Hill, right? Like all bad things that character got. Like some things that, uh, behaviors that were attributed to that character was like three or four other people, right? And they collapsed. Okay. And the reason they do that is for, for the sake of the narrative. Um, yeah. But generally speaking, the movie was very accurate and it captured like the, insanity of the time it was a very different time you know the, the the 90s this is before the advent of smartphones life was different i think we forget before social media before smartphones without everyone had a camera you know was happening that's it's not happening now you can't get away with stuff now so we were doing things and engaging in behaviors that at the time were far more commonplace than you know uh, let's say say if you do that now you're going to get filmed in, in trouble What's the deal with Quaaludes? So let me, I've never done a Quaalude. I've never had a friend. I've never been around a friend that does Quaaludes. The movie is my closest exposure to Quaaludes. And again, that scene where DiCaprio drags himself to the Lamborghini, again, I don't know if that's actually that's how accurate. accurate that is. That's accurate. Okay, what's the appeal, Jordan? What's the appeal of a Quaalude? 
In fact, that the car, the actual Lamborghini right now is being auctioned off in, I think, Abu Dhabi for $1.5 million. The crash, the crashed up car is now being auctioned off, right? Pretty interesting. The only problem was is that in real life, it was a Mercedes, not a Lamborghini. Separate oh, okay. issue. But other than that, the whole scene is, is dead on balls accurate. So, so here's a, what a quail it is. It was designed to be a sleeping pill sedative right and it was supposed to give you like eight hours of restful sleep and you wake up feeling refreshed that's true if you take a quaalude and you're in bed and the lights are off you'll be asleep in probably 20 minutes and you wake up with no hangover and it's really amazing right and great great sleep you get good quality sleep on it right not perfect but good but if you take a quaalude and you fight that initial urge to sleep and you're up and around, you get the most kick-ass high in the world. You get the most euphoric high. It starts off with something called the tingle phase, where your, your fingertips start to like tingle. You get this euphoric feeling like, it's just like you're on cloud nine, it's just amazing. It lasts for about 30 minutes, that's phase one. Phase two of the quail high is called the slur phase. That's when you start like slurring your words a bit, you know, and you, you start rounding out, yeah, I love you, yeah, and you get the slurs, and like, and you love everybody, and you also get phonitis, which means you want to call everyone you know and tell them that you love them. <laughs> so like my ex-wife, she used to like unplug my phones when I was high on loose because I'd be calling people, everyone, I love you, and you, and, and you think you sound perfect. That's the thing. You don't realize you're slurring. You think you sound great, right? That lasts for about an hour. Then that kind of merges into what's called the drool phase, where you start to like drool a bit because like you're getting sloppy and, but you're like, well, drooling's not so bad. Babies drool, I can drool. You know, drooling's just part of life, right? That's the drool phase. And then phase four is unconsciousness. Where you just pass out wherever you are. That could be in a restaurant, in a bowl of soup, in a rose bush somewhere, hopefully in your bed, but often not because you took them when you're out and you resisted that urge to sleep. Those are the four main phases of the quaalude high. And the amazing thing is that unlike alcohol, there's no hangover. So like you, you, you could do, you can get really you know, just high as a kite and you wake up refreshed at the end of the day. So, or the next morning, right? So, so it was easy to abuse them. And the problem was this, is they were a legitimate drug. And like the opioid crisis today, and here's the difference. So the opioid crisis, total disaster, right? Where every doctor was prescribing these, these pill mills. The same thing happened with quaaludes. There were all these doctors in pill mills. You go to these places, they're weight loss clinics. They give you black beauty speed and then ludes to fall asleep. And people would throw away the, the black beauties and then take the prescriptions and crack the prescriptions, just like the opioid crisis. The difference between the two is that opioids are necessary. Like there's legitimate, you need to have opioids in society. People are in severe pain, cancer. Like you, you cannot have a society without opioids. Doctors need to prescribe opioids legitimately for pain, right? Not as much as they did, but they're legitimate. So there are so many legitimate opioid prescriptions. For quaaludes, there's probably not one legitimate prescription ever written. <laughs> like after the people just start abusing them. Like no one used them for sleep. So there was no legitimate use case. So better sleeping pills came out afterwards that didn't get you as high when you, so like in other words, Quaaludes were just fun. It became like this ultimate fun party drug, and the DEA made them illegal, rightfully so. And thank God, by the way, because you can't get them because it's too, you know, I, I don't want it near me at this point. You know what I appreciate about that? First of all, I appreciate that you answered that in, in thorough detail, but it also occurs to me while you're telling that entire story. First of all, you're the same guy that there was a scene made about in a movie in, you know, requiring people to sell you a pen. So you're a talker. You're a salesman. You know how to talk. But it occurs to me while you're giving me this answer. 
I've probably never. I, there's probably not a question I can come up with that you haven't already been asked about all of this. So it's like <laughs> you know halfway into my question what you're going to give me. So here's what I'll ask you. And I don't. You may be ready to go on this one too. I don't know if it's natural talent of the salesman or it's the tenth time you've been asked this question. You know, you this movie has made you. It's it's weird. Okay, look, you did some very bad things, not just no to yourself, not just to yourself, but to other people, and that has right. to be acknowledged. And you have acknowledged it. I don't know where you stand today with restitution. I couldn't keep up with all of that, but I, I don't even. I, I don't need to fall down that rabbit hole. What I do want to ask you is, you kind of got famous for the bad things you did in life, right? And and like young men, and including me walked around quoting the speech of, of, of Wall Street, not Wolf of Wall Street, but of Wall Street. There are young men like me or much younger who've seen Wolf of Wall Street and they have a great time and you become somewhat of an anti-hero or a cult hero. And yet you have to also know this is a, this, this is a revolving around something that you've done that I, I would like to hope that you're not proud of in your life. So how do you, how do you kind of, and by the way, the movie and these things that you did as well are the reason you and I are talking and why people know who sure. you are and, and that will buy your book. How do you reconcile mm. all of that? The way sure. people react to you versus the, the self-awareness of mm. what you've done. So I think that's, that's simplifying what the movie is about. So I think that people are smart enough to be able to, take out the great things that I did in the movie. There's so much greatness that's in the movie of, 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 of like accomplishments, starting a business from scratch, not being from a rich family, taking a risk, working hard, motivating other people, teaching others to sell, the camaraderie, the fun, all that was great. So you can actually, ha imagine all that happened and the stocks were all great and worked and people made money. It would all be amazingly beautiful and great and everyone lives happily ever after. So I think you have to look past, okay, so I made some huge errors, no doubt. I'd like to know who hasn't made some huge errors in their life, but I made some really big ones and I paid for those errors. But that doesn't negate all the great things that you saw happen in the movie, the building a company from scratch to thousands of people. It was a legitimate brokerage firm that's all legitimate. It wasn't like, you know, FTX were stealing the money out the back doors. You know, the, what I did wrong was very, it wasn't like the companies weren't real. They were real. And some of the companies are massive today, like Steve Madden shoes. So it's, it's far more complex than to say, I did terrible things. You can't root for a guy or take out the great things he did as well. So the idea is that when you model anybody, or you want to emulate anybody, you don't have to emulate the entire organism. You could say, I love all of those things that he did, but I don't want to fall into the trap that he fell into of getting caught up in greed and it, trying to make as much money as you can as quickly as you can. So when I go out there and preach a message today, it's literally the empowering version of what you saw in the Wolf of Wall Street. You can do all that, but not get caught up in the that's well, so, so that's interesting. I mean, it, while you're talking, I, I, I want to be like, you know, well, Charlie Manson was was incredibly charismatic, but he just used it for the wrong purposes. And you clearly are very charismatic, a great leader. And I'm not comparing you to Charlie Manson. It's just the first analogy that I could reach for, uh, you know, but you you clearly are charismatic. You're a great salesman. You you, you are an analytical mind. So um, the, the I guess the the. The question is then, like, how do you marshal that going forward, right? And it, well, no better. The better question is, how do you see it going wrong? You you threw the word greed. So when you did all that, you built the American company. You came from working mm. class. You had these natural talents. So what pulled you wrong? Is just simple old greed? Yes, that's the simple answer. Is that it's greed is certainly a, a big part of it, right? But I think it goes way beyond greed. It, it had to do with a couple of things. Number one was desire for short-term gratification. 
So in other words, looking to make money quickly versus, you know, having delaying that gratification, which is really the wiser way to make money. But even taking it one step further is that not understanding the purpose of what a business is. What, What is business for? What is the purpose of any business? And if you would have asked me when I was 24 years old, I'd say, well, the purpose of business is to make money and get rich. But that's not the purpose of a business. The purpose of a, of a well-run business is to deliver value to people in a cost-effective way. So you have something that's valuable, whether it's a service, a product, whatever that might be, and that, that represents value. The question is, how do you deliver that value to solve people's problems, to give them some benefit, right? And do that in a way where you end up with a profit at the end of the day. And then the more people you can help, the more value you deliver, the more money that you make. That's what a well-run business does. That's frankly what I do today. Everything I do, the reason why my books do so well, this book for a $20 investment, whatever it is, you know, you get massive value that could save you hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So of course it's a great value proposition. When I teach salesmen to sell at, at seminars, of course they're getting massive value. And this is going on for like 15 years I'm doing it. So they keep coming back because I give value value. It's when you don't give value, and you charge a lot of money that suddenly the whole thing reverses on itself and becomes, whether it's a scam or just illegitimate or ill-intended, right? And that's not sustainable. So what makes a business sustainable is the value proposition. So mm-hmm. I focus to everything I do today, I focus on giving more value than I would get back. For example, when the NFT boom was wild, right? I was approached by countless people to launch NFTs. And I could have launched 10,000 wolves, right? And made 20, $30 million in a day. I never did it. I got close to the end, but when I actually got to the point where I was examining the value proposition, I'm like, there's no way this is gonna end well for the people who buy them. So I didn't, I chose not to make $20, $30 million profit because I figured the people on the other end are going to end up losing. And that would have been right because they, all those NFTs are now worthless from all the people that sold them. And 24-year-old Jordan Belfort would have been all over NFTs? I would have sold the NFTs and never even thought twice about what the people would, (laughs) that would have occurred to me because I would have said, well, my business is to make money. The question I asked myself back then was, how do I make more money? The question I asked myself today is, how do I deliver massive value to people and monetize the value afterwards? So it's a shift in perspective and I do better today than I did back then because it's more long-term and it builds on itself. And more importantly, when I walk down the street or go anywhere in the world, people love me because they, cause they yeah. all get massive value. And, they, and especially the fact they look at the movie and say, well, look what this guy did. He turned his life around, came back from going to jail, losing everything. That's inspiring to people. Because yeah. everyone, people find themselves in, in bad spots, whether it's through their own mistakes like mine the economy goes bad, they make a bad decision, whatever it might be, or through no fault of their own, and they're behind the eight ball financially, even emotionally, in love, and like whatever aspect, and they look at my life and say, you know what? This guy came back from the depths of hell and is living this amazing life with a great wife, great family, very successful family. I can do it too. And then I actually show people the skills, whether it's entrepreneurial skills, sales skills. And then this is the first time I focus on actually what do you do with your money? How do you invest your money wisely? And I'm proud of this book because I, I know it's the truth. I know it's inarguably the best advice that anyone can give to an investor is in this book. I know Warren Buffett would say the same thing in two seconds if he read. <laughs> no, he would. He would because it's, he says it, by you. the way. No, because it's, it's the right advice. So, like, I would never write a book saying, hey, let me show you how to speculate. Like, I think people should speculate, but with 5% of their money and have fun.
That's that's the difference. I appreciate that answer. I truly do. I I, I think that shows a great amount of self-reflection and wisdom. Uh, and it also highlights for me something I want to think about a lot is purpose. When you go into something, what is your purpose? And you're highlighting that at one point you would have thought the purpose was to make money. Now the purpose is to provide value. And that changes the entire – that changes all the skills that you had, the talent that you had, and the outcome. You brought up FTX. I want to ask you a couple questions, sort of market-wide sure. really quickly. Uh, what's your estimation of what happened with Sam Bankman-Fried? Is that purely criminal? I mean, it, it certainly clear, sounds – to be and it seems to be wrapped up in politics what but it's so confusing and it's huge what, what happened in your estimation here was that just a criminal enterprise criminal enterprise Cl- clearly uh criminal enterprise where um now what you probably thought i'm guessing is that i can take their money use it and make more money and give their money back he probably thought he'd give their money back one day and not lose so much money and the other side is Alameda trading, right? So my, my guess is, is that he probably thought he'd get away with it, which is a lot of, a lot of these you know, people that are, um, it wasn't really so much of a Ponzi scheme, it was on some level, it was just a blatant thievery. It was just like people sending in their money and like they just, just took it out of their accounts and put it into his trading account, right? Like, you know, those are things that like would never even occur to me when I, in my worst days at Stratton. Like, we, it's like, because it's so easy to get caught, number one. It's like not even, a, it's like the most unelegant, blunt crime of those take people's money, right? My guess is he probably thought he could make money and then eventually give it all back. It will go public or raise, raise his way out of it, right? And then, unfortunately, when Bitcoin went down and the market crashed, right? Well, he became a victim of his own Right. And that was that. Um, but how yeah, do you explain total- sort of the nuance some people try to inject into his situation, whether or not I, I can't come up with the names, but I feel like some fairly sophisticated recently. I read fairly some sophisticated investors said, you know, it wasn't as bad as, as it, it might have looked. And he was in, he was brilliant. And, and maybe even some politicians have acted like, you know, this thing might have been able to find its way to, to better legitimacy. I, and I wish I could have. Absolutely not. I wish Absolutely. I could call up who said that, but I, I, you you may know. There's been some like sophisticated, legitimate investors kind of rally to the side of of Sam Bankman Fried. Anyone that rallied to the side of Sam Bankman Fried probably was in bed with Sam Bankman Fried in some way, or invested money with Sam Bankman Fried. Uh, because you, could, I, I couldn't imagine how you could say that, knowing anything about the, the the crypto market or the stock market. It was blatant prima facie fraud. You, it's, you, it's against the law. You cannot take in money from customers to just use it. It's got to be segregated. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's just it's like right. a, it's just blatant thievery. So I don't I don't know what, how they could be saying that. Now, if it's a politician, well, yeah, maybe. They have just no idea about how investing works, right? But one of the, the, the fundamental rules when you are self-clearing is that customer funds are segregated. They need to be set. You don't. You can't use your customers' funds, right? And this is he's not the first person to do it, right? It happens in in other industries as well, like in, in builders. So you see builders get indicted because they had five projects. They start robbing from one project to pay for another project. This is illegal. But in the stock market, or in this case, the crypto market, it's very regulated, right? Even even like while there wasn't regulations for crypto spec, there's still fraud regulations. You can't steal people's money, which is precisely what he did. So I don't think he's very yeah. brilliant at all. I think he's kind of an idiot, the guy. I think. He you know, he had the, you know, he was like, uh, used the, the kind of nerd, uh, I'm the nerdy genius facade, like to me, he's so smart, he doesn't even pay attention, he's that smart, you know, the guy's an idiot, honestly, okay, to do what he did was so ridiculously, it's such a low level, like, I, the guy from Terra Luna, you know, the whole disaster with that, with uh, Terra Luna, with Terra and, and the stable coin, right, the alleged, the not so stable stable coin, right, that, that lost, you know, people $50 billion, right, that was another one, right, at least that was more elegant, like he was, he was like, his thing was pretending it was a safe investment was wildly speculative. But what Sam Bankman did was just like plain, like, send me your money and I'm going to take it out the back door and trade with it. There's, right. there's no ifs, ands, or buts to that, in my, in my opinion.
Okay, so let's round it out with this. Um, you know, in talking about index funds and your advice to 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 invest along with the market at large, what what you're also doing, Jordan, is you're um, advising essentially essentially uh, betting on the American economy, and in short, then mm-hmm. betting on America. Um, I think I know your answer. You wouldn't be saying what you've been saying so so eloquently today, but you feel good about the future of the American economy, about the long. I mean. There are people today that have questions about corruption at every level of our society, from politics to Wall Street, and whether or not everything is a rigged game, and whether or not there is a big chicken coming home to roost when it comes to how much money we've been printing and the debt bubbles we're living under, whether or not all that's going to result in a minimum of a serious recession. What do you say? When, how do you respond to that? When I, what I also hear you saying is, no, bank on America. So, good question. So, number one... Um I would look at the American economy with all its problems, including debt, massive debt, right, as the best bad option out there. So there's no better option. And I've been all over the world. I've traveled the world. I've spoken. I've mentored people around the world, coached them. I've been hired by companies all over. And there's something about America. You, you could hate our country. You could hate the system. You're right. I agree with you about every, corruption. Yes, it's so terrible, right? But the entrepreneurial mindset we have, and the tracker we have and the capital marks we have are the best out there and they lead to the creation of massive wealth. What happens when this deck is so stacked against the average person is the wealth gets concentrated at the top. It's the average person and people in the, you know, the lower middle class and they get squeezed and the poor people get poorer. Middle class gets sweet and the rich get, get squeezed and the rich get richer. So what I'm advocating here is no one buying the richest, biggest companies in America. They're going to do fine no matter what. So I think that as things get tougher and tougher, it's going to wealth will be concentrated at the top. So now you're essentially your exposure is at the top of the market. You're not trying to buy the small companies. You're buying the biggest companies. That's number one. Number two, 40 percent of their business is done overseas. They're multinational companies. So by buying into these multinational companies, you're getting global exposure as well. These are impeccably well-run companies. And again, I, I, I do believe in America it's for all the problems that we have, and I, especially the political side. So, yeah, it enrages me what I see, the corruption, right? But, you know, I also think that as, a, as an empowered individual, whoever's watching this or listening to this, right, you could say, I'm so angry, I'm going to sit home and, like, you're going to stomp my feet, or... You say, well, I better make as much money as possible and secure my future because I can't count on the government for my retirement. Like, I don't think you can count on Social Security for very much at all. So you need to be self-empowered. You need to do it yourself. So what I'm talking about in this book here is not about speculating in stocks. I'm talking about a proven long-term way to secure your retirement for you and your family. And you can end up wealthy by using the advice in this book, even if you're not wealthy now, by allowing just market forces and time to do the heavy lifting for you. And that's the best advice I can give anybody, no matter what age you are. The younger, the better, but it's never too late. And what's your advice for America? I know at one time you liked Trump. I feel like you've gone back and forth on more Trump, less Trump. Are you ready put for Trump a different against, Republican? Put, put Trump against Biden. I'll choose Trump Every time and twice on Sundays. I think Biden's the biggest disaster ever. Although it's not Biden. Biden's a cutout for Obama at all. People that are running it. Biden's senile. We all know that. I mean, I'm not even, I used to feel like a little twinge of embarrassment. I say, Biden's, he's senile. I mean, the guy can barely walk and chew gum with this. He can barely walk without chewing gum, right? So that, that's on that side. Are there things about Trump that bother? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I don't like about Trump. Uh, I thought the country was in much better shape 
when Trump was president. Um, I was hoping that like a better version of Trump would come along. Like a DeSantis. I was, I mean, I'm in Florida. I love DeSantis. I think he was an, he's an amazing governor. But for whatever reason, it's not his time. It's, it seems like it's not his time. Um, you know, Trump has got a very strong base. And also he's being persecuted right now in the most a ridiculous fashion and so it makes me more sympathetic towards Trump it makes me like him more the fact that he stands up to this what is political persecution at the highest level I never thought I'd ever see this in the United States right so um, you know yeah I, I vote for Trump over Biden any day I was hoping someone better would come along doesn't seem like they have so you know you take the best bad option and as well, you said the best bad option in the economy is America. Man, this has been a great conversation. I'm excited to have talked to you, Jordan. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom to glean here. And the book is The Wolf of Investing. Thank you, you so Amazon much. Amazon or anywhere else, by the way. It's on Amazon and every bookstore. So check it out. All right. Thank you, Jordan Belfort. Take care. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jordan Belfort. Remember, check out his new book, The Wolf of Investing. That's going to do it for me today here on the Will Kane Podcast. I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.